You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back to the 1208 Podcast. Uh, Sorry we missed last week if you were listening to the podcast and you heard me say that that was a possibility. We had general conference coming up for uh, the Free Methodist Church, and that only happens every four years. So when it does happen, it's kind of a big deal. So uh, I was out in Florida for that, which surprisingly, it was hotter here in Michigan than it was in Florida towards the end of the week, but it was crazy humid and hot down there when I first got there. And if y'all know me, you know I hate heat. So I am glad for this 50-degree weather that we've been having the last few days, and it's good to be home, energized by uh, by that conference. Uh, I just got to say, it's, it's really a beautiful thing in my life to be a part of the Free Methodist Church. I love the way that they gracefully and lovingly handle all kinds of things that come their way. And uh, just how they've been very intentional this year on ways that uh, um, really surprised me. So, for example, um, I grew up in the Free Methodist Church, and spiritual gifts were not often emphasized in many of the places that I went. Uh, But this year, from the stage, they brought people up on the stage to talk about uh, giftings and the Holy Spirit, told crazy supernatural stories, and just uh, told you know all the pastors that were there like this is stuff that we need to we need to really thrive for uh, and eagerly desire so that God can do great works through us in these ways. So that was amazing just to to see based on where I've been in my life and where the Free Methodist Church is now from such a public perspective how they're talking about it. Uh, they were also very intentionally aiming for diversity. As you could tell, the stage was always, uh, there was men, there were women, uh, there were black, there were white, there were Hispanic. I mean, just constantly, you never really saw two white guys get on the stage one after another. It just always seemed like a, there was a big intentionality to show how diverse the church is. And the church obviously... Uh, has brought that diversity now into its head leadership um, as we elected our first woman bishop of uh, ever in the Free Methodist Church. So I'm excited about that. That's just kind of like uh, coming back and giving you some of the details. It was a really cool experience. And I'm excited to bring some of that back home. So some of the stuff that it's kind of energized me with is you're going to see someone up on the stage at 1208 just... uh, kind of joining the band, but they're not a musician. Their job's going to be just to kind of sit and listen for the Spirit to talk. It's often easier to hear the Spirit when you're intentionally, like, that's your role. Uh, Sometimes when I'm leading worship, I'll sense something come along, but it would be easier if my job was literally just to listen instead of try to play music and listen at the same time. So we're creating a role for that. On top of that, uh, me and Stephen Halacki, who used to be here at 1208 with us, uh, we drew up a, a conference, a one-day conference that we're going to be hosting in two different locations. So it'll be the same conference, but it's all on spiritual gifts. Once we're going to host it here, March 14th, I believe, it's a Saturday, 
We're going to host it here at 1208. And we just want everyone in our entire church to be there, to learn about the ways in which God has gifted them and to empower them to to be the church. So that's a spiritual gifts conference that we'll be doing uh, March 14th at 1208. Me, Stephen Halacki, and we've got another person who uh, thinks they're going to come alongside us as well. And then um, I'll be heading out to West Virginia to do the same exact event at uh, the church where Stephen Halacki pastors out there. So uh, it'll just be cool to kind of bring our conferences in on this, to bring our churches in on this, and to all grow together. So you're going to start hearing us talk about that from the stage as soon as this Sunday. Anyways, uh, yeah, I just thought it'd be good to kind of catch you up to speed. You know, some of you have been a part of the Free Methodist Church for a little bit, for a long time, and then others of you have been a little maybe wary of denominations, uh, which is understandable. You know, they kind of fall all over the map. I understand that. Um, but I was just really encouraged uh, by the Free Methodist denomination this year and just all the intentionality and themes that uh, they considered worth getting into and all that so anyways there's my little spiel now it's time for my longer spiel because it's time to talk about uh genesis 16 7 uh which is going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago off was with the introduction to Hagar. Abraham and Sarah have decided to take things into their own hands, you'll remember, uh, rather than wait for God's promise to come true that Sarah would have a child, especially as she's now well-aged beyond any kind of reasonability to have a child. Uh, they decide to take matters into their own hands. Who knows? Maybe they even convince themselves, maybe this is really what God wanted for us to use a custom of our time. And in that podcast, we talked about that custom where uh, since a woman uh, would have owned her slave girl uh, back in this time, that slave girl was technically like her property. So if she were to give her slave girl to her husband for the sake of procreating because she cannot, that was a custom as we saw in other ancient laws like the Hammurabi Code. This was a custom that could be practiced in their time. Now, we've seen all the drama that's come out of that. Hagar then, it all goes to her head. She got pregnant, but her master hasn't. And so she's kind of treating, uh, looking down on her master. And uh, that makes her master Sarah mad. And so Sarah starts abusing Hagar. And that brings us to today's passage where Hagar runs away. So let me read it to you. Genesis 16 7 um, to 16. And we're going to learn about the birth of Ishmael today, and we're going to jump around a little bit throughout Genesis, even into the New Testament, to talk about what we know of of Ishmael, this this new character that enters the scene through Abraham and Sarah's um, sin, their, their inability to wait on God's promise, and their capacity to bring in this new soap opera suffering uh, even if it was the culture of their time, 
You know, it's not marriage as God perceives it. It's not sex as God perceives it. And it comes with all of the baggage that sex outside of marriage and the way in which God has designed it. It comes with all that baggage as it always does. So Sarah deals harshly with her and it says Hagar fled from her. That's where we pick up in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, the servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Berid. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. All right, well, we've got quite a few passages to look over today. So let's go ahead and start right here with what we've just read, the birth of Ishmael, um, starting with something that we've talked a lot about, the angel of the Lord. Okay, so the angel of the Lord, if you remember, it is a specific angel. It's not just an angel of the Lord. It is the angel of the Lord. And this angel, when he shows up, oftentimes it's very confusing as to if he is talking on God's behalf or if he is God. Now, we're not going to get into it all over again because we've covered it on, I think, a lot of podcasts <laughs> But uh, in my opinion, this angel of the Lord is more or less pre-incarnate Jesus. And I know that sounds crazy if you haven't listened to the other podcasts, but just know this, the simple way to say it for now. In the Old Testament, there is a physical manifestation of God, sometimes known as the angel of the Lord, sometimes known as the word of the Lord. Uh, either way, these are manifestations of God in physical form who speak not only on his behalf, but speak as though they are God. It's a different kind of angel, a different kind of being. And this isn't just crazy speculation. A lot of scholars um, either go this direction or really desire to go this direction. And everyone has to admit, like, it is confusing when this angel shows up. He truly kind of blends the lines between being an angel and being God himself. So this is our first uh, our first sight specifically of the angel of the Lord. It's the first time he's shown up so far in the Bible here in Genesis 16. And he comes and he talks again as though he is God. That's what we just saw, right? Uh, he, he says... Uh, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
Why would an angel say that? Is an angel going to multiply Hagar's offspring? <laughs> Why would he say, I will do that? Again, the Bible writers are being intentional. The angel of the Lord talks as though he is God. They understand that sounds confusing, but they understand that that's the way that this, this, this form of God, again, if Jesus is the physical form of God in the New Testament and the angel of the Lord doesn't exist in the New Testament, then it would make sense that before Jesus was born of humanity that, and because he's always existed, the Bible says Jesus has always existed since the very beginning, it would make sense that the angel of the Lord is kind of his uh, physical appearance in the Old Testament and Jesus is his physical appearance born of man in the New Testament. Anyways, I will surely multiply your offspring. He says that as though he is the one who is going to do it. On top of that, you know, it goes on. You see the continuation of the confusion because uh, after the angel of the Lord has spoken to Hagar, it says she called on the name of the Lord, and that's caps lock Lord. So that's she called on the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. She called on the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. Uh, who who just spoke to her? Again, it was the angel of the Lord. So, And she says, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So again, you just see Hagar very explicitly saying, I just saw God. <laughs> I saw God face to face. So just to make it clear, the first time we meet the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the lines are completely blurred between Yahweh himself and this angel on his behalf. An angel is just supposed to send messages. That is not what the angel of the Lord does. And there's more description about him throughout the Bible as he is defined a little bit more. Okay, so all that being said, just wanted to cover that again now that we have officially met the angel of the Lord. A uh, few other things that are worth covering is uh, the fact that Ishmael gets the promise. So it's interesting, you know, if we were to backtrack to the point where God promised Abram, uh, Abraham, you know, I'm going to make you a nation. Your offspring is not going to be able to be numbered. There's going to be so many of them. Right here, interestingly enough, though Ishmael was not what God was referring to at that point, God was not saying, you will bear a son named Ishmael when you sin against me and... <laughs> decide to take your own route, your own way. That's not what God was talking about. But uh, because the promise was to Abraham's offspring, well, Ishmael is technically Abraham's offspring. It's not his offspring in the sense that it's what God was planning, but it still is his offspring. And so it's almost as though like God's promise gets gets allocated to Ishmael as well, because here he's telling Hagar the same thing that he promised in a covenantal promise to Abraham. It's like, okay, well, Ishmael applies to that promise because it's Abraham's offspring. And he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So now that's how faithful God is. <laughs> you know, that always blows my mind. God is so faithful that he actually applies a promise to a situation where it didn't necessarily belong in his uh, his his desire as to how this was all to work out. You know, he didn't desire for Hagar to be oppressed and to go through all this. Isaac was the plan. 
but still he uh he applies the promise even even where it was not necessarily in his idea of of what he was wanting to happen okay so that catches up us up to a few things uh, i do want to say something just a devotional thought for you this has always stood out to me um in a way that surprised me, actually. I remember I was like on a stage once and I was praying. <laughs> and suddenly this story came to me. And what caught me off guard is I remembered it so specifically that at one point I'm just like, ah, and that's when Hagar named the well Bir Laharoi. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know Hebrew. Why did that come to my mind? How did I memorize the name of this well? Uh, but God kind of, I felt like God was bringing it to my mind at that time. And it's ever since that moment, it's kind of been a very powerful story uh, to me. You know, here's Hagar. She's broken down. She's falling apart. Uh, she's a slave girl who started to make her way up the social ladder as a, uh, a wife um, for, for someone whom God has promised great things. And so this poor Egyptian slave girl is starting to get life in a sense where it's headed somewhere. And then suddenly everything flips on her. You know, she's, uh, her, her master finally remembers like her place in the social ladder and starts to abuse her slave girl. Things are returning to how it was. Here's this pregnant woman who is now being afflicted yet again to the point that she has to run away or she feels like she has to run away. She's out in the middle of the wilderness and think like the world that she lives in is reflecting how she feels. It's the wilderness, you know, but suddenly she comes across a well, a, a spring, just one spot of, of some real tangible life and refreshment amongst this wilderness when suddenly God himself shows up and God begins to speak prophetic words into her life. And, and her response is in the name Bir Laharoi. That's, that's what she calls the, the well, which means the well of the living one who sees me. The well of the living one who sees me. She, she makes a, a place in history she gives that place in history a name because here she recognizes she is not alone. Though as a slave girl, she feels alone. She feels beaten down. She feels abused and oppressed. Still, amidst all of that difficulty, God sees her. And I, I hope that that's just a, a good word for all of us to take in because there's a lot of times where we, we feel broken down or oppressed or like we're in a wilderness um, but God in this story is that, that place of water and refreshment where Hagar is just so stunned, not only by the fact that she's just met God, but she's stunned by the fact that God sees her. And maybe that's just a, a good word that a lot of us could hear today.
Okay, now that we've been a little devotional for a minute, let's uh, return one more time to this story to uh, hit on something that's interesting in that prophetic word. Because, as you'll recall, we got this weird statement here where God says that uh, Ishmael, which, by the way, if you're to translate that, that means God hears. So again, you've kind of got, even in Ishmael's name, this idea of not only this is the well where God sees me, but Ishmael's name is to remind Hagar every time she says it that God hears her as well. Uh, but Ishmael, God says, <laughs> is going to be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. This, of course, leaves us with questions. What do you mean he's going to be a wild donkey of a man? Unfortunately, I can't really give you a, a clear answer here as there are many different ways scholars have interpreted this. But I'm just going to give you kind of a, a rundown really quick. Lexham Bible Dictionary uh, kind of gives a, a bunch of possibilities that different scholars have, have put out there. So Von Rad interprets this statement to mean that Ishmael would be free and wild and highly qualified in the opinion of the Near Easterners. So that's one position. Another position is uh, that uh, this statement indicates that Ishmael will enjoy a free-roaming existence where the freedom his mother sought will be his one day. He argues that the phrase, wild donkey of a man, is an Old Testament figure of, dis of speech. It's an Old Testament figure of speech describing a figure of an individualistic lifestyle untrammeled by social convention. So, so far we've got two things that actually sound pretty familiar. Uh, free and wild, or just kind of like free roaming, he's out and about, uh, a wild donkey of the man, he He's wild, a wild animal. You know, he doesn't blend into society very well. He's all over the place. Uh, Spicer, another position, third position. Spicer demonstrates that the Hebrew phrase wild donkey is connected to the Akkadian phrase meaning savage of a man. Now, that interpretation right there is actually generally what comes to my mind. I don't know if there's a different one that's come to your mind. But wild donkey, I think uh, in modern society, since at least if you don't live around donkeys, you're like, yeah, a wild donkey is just kicking about and kicking people in the face and, and all that. Now, that's just one possible interpretation we're already seeing. Um, Westerman, so a, a fourth view, argues that the birth announcement predicts that Ishmael will be of significance for the people. He suggests the statement that Ishmael will be at odds with his kin presupposes the sedentary and Bedouin desert tribes living in Canaan side by side and in confrontation in the period after the settlement. So just note there more or less that uh, um, these particular tribes did exist and they were wanderers. They didn't have anywhere to actually live, so they constantly moved and in search of food and pasture. So part of what uh, some scholars would say is that Ishmael is is more or less like kind of the the start to these kind of tribes, these wandering nomads who are everywhere. They're they're a part of the line of the the wild donkey. So that's part of how uh, some scholars would take this prophetic statement. 
another one. Sarna argues that the description of Ishmael as a wild donkey must be interpreted with the sturdy, fearless, and fleet-footed Syrian onager in mind and suggests it connotes someone who inhabits the wilderness and is almost impossible to domesticate. He states, Hagar, the abused slave, subjected to the harsh discipline of her mistress, will produce a people free and undisciplined. So here you've got kind of like the prophetic reversal in Sarna's opinion. At one point, she was a slave, but her children are going to be the opposite. They'll be free people everywhere, uh, wandering around. Can't domesticate them. And then finally, one more, in case uh, your mind's not already reeling. These are moments where I'm like, oh, there's just so many ways to take it. Do I understand the Bible at all? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you got to opt for one or the other. Or, well, actually, honestly, a lot of these ideas, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's blending factors between all of them. So there's certain elements here that could be true between opposing views. Uh, but the final one. Uh, Siren argues that elsewhere in the Bible, the wild donkey is the typical unfettered wild animal, alone and free to go its own way. Like the wild donkey, Ishmael is predestined to a solitary wandering life. In this respect, he can be compared to Cain, although unlike Cain, the biblical narrator does not impute any crime or guilt on Ishmael. Now, that would be his opinion that there's been nothing wrong that Ishmael's done, I would agree with that, but we are going to look in a few moments as we keep moving the possibility uh, that some scholars are like, did he do something wrong? Well, we'll get to that uh, in a bit. But that's uh, generally what's been said of this prophetic statement. You know, a lot of times you read things like that, and you're like, he's a wild donkey of a man. What do I do to interpret that? Uh, there might be another way that you could lump it together. This isn't, this is just me speaking. Um, but I preached back in Easter about kind of this uh, story of humans acting like animals. You can go listen to that message on our podcast. Um, but every time that you hope that someone would rise up and be a true human being the way that God designed us to be, you constantly see people kind of default to something more animalistic. So sin is looking to crouch and and jump on Cain. Sin is described as an animal. Uh, you see um, Nimrod gets described as an animal, or he has certain animalistic things, uh, words behind him. You see uh, later Esau is going to be described kind of hairy like an animal. So, And you just keep seeing these possible allusions to people that you think are going to be the one, people who you, you think might be the chance, and then they come out and they're actually more animalistic then they are humanish, and you're like, okay, so this isn't the chance. So, if you were to put this in that same box, um, and this whole motif of humans acting like animals, I'm borrowing from uh, the podcast known as the Bible Podcast. Uh, sorry, the Bible Project. They have a podcast. They also have amazing videos. I've talked about it before. You should listen and watch everything that they've made. Um, but. If, you know, these ideas are accurate, honestly, this one would fit that same motif, right? So Ishmael um, would be the, the hope, 
Sarah and Abraham, they think they figured it out. God promised them they'd have a kid. They came up with their own plan. They think they figured it out. And you're waiting for this birth to happen. You're waiting to see if this is the one. And then suddenly there's this prophetic annunciation. Uh, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. He's not the one. He's not the son of... He's, he's not going to be the, the true human being who rises up to the occasion to be everything that God called him to be. It's going to be like a wild donkey. So I'm not saying that that is a plausible interpretation, but it would fit the thematic elements that go throughout the Bible and I think could be just something to think about. Fast forward a little bit to continue specifically with the story of Ishmael. Um, as we fast forward, we're going to see Abraham's actual son between him and Sarah enter the picture, but Ishmael is still present. So let's start with kind of the promise God makes yet again for Sarah in uh, Genesis 17:15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. I want to point out there that, that last line. Again, it speaks to what we've been talking about. Sometimes God appears in physical form, right? Because what happens at the end of this? We thought we were just maybe hearing the voice of God, like, Abraham, Abraham, you know, like he's perking up, trying to listen through the sky as to God talking. But then at the end, this figure who's been speaking to him the whole time just ascends into the sky, ascends into heaven. And when we see that, we're like, okay. So this was, again, that physical form of God that does show up in the Old Testament. Even though the angel of the Lord language wasn't used here, we have now gotten used to physical form of God showing up and, and we're starting to see him even in other places 
where it's not being super descriptive, but just descriptive enough to know if you went up, you must have been right there at the time. All right, now let's rewind a little bit and talk about this passage. Uh, a few things I do want to reference. We didn't see Abram's name changed to Abraham, but what you should know is that uh, Abram means uh, exalted father, which you know, when people know in Hebrew, like, oh, you're an exalted father, huh? Pretty great. Uh, you got no kids, you know, like that can uh, perhaps be uh, difficult to have to deal with from the people insulting you around you. Uh, but God changes Abram's name to Abraham. So he goes from exalted father to father of a multitude, which, again, could be uh, something that people would make fun of. You know, he's 100 years old. Yeah, father of a multitude. Sure. Uh, but then God brings this to happen. Likewise, Sarai's name changes. Uh, she goes uh, to be named Sarah officially. And Sarai and Sarah, uh, they they both mean princess. You can translate both words as princess. Uh, but you see her name adapting to the call of God on her life too. Uh, and then finally, Isaac, uh, which means he laughs. So Abraham is told about this promise, and Abraham laughs. And so part of the prophetic word that God gives his child is, you're going to name your kid, he laughs. And every day, you're going to look at your kid, and you're going to be like, I named my kid after laughter because I thought God was joking with me, or I didn't think he could do it. So uh, just in the same way, Ishmael kind of carried these prophetic statements in his name. So we can now kind of see uh, Abraham, Sarah, and uh, Isaac all carrying prophetic value in their names. Abraham, you're going to be a father of many. Sarah, you are going to be a princess. You're going to be like the queen of all of these uh, nations that will will come out from um, from you. And then uh, Isaac, you're you're a joke. <laughs> Sorry, you're going to be named after after laughing. Uh, okay, so that catches us up on some of the prophetic name changes here. Now, let's also take a minute and bring this back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which I'm not going to go into great detail about this every time we talk because I've talked about it so much. But just to remind you, Deuteronomy 32 basically uh, states that when the Tower of Babel incident happened and the nations were divided by languages, Deuteronomy 32 would say that each nation was put under the control of a little g god. Uh, in other words, just a, a spiritual being that God had created himself, because God is the only God. But he created a spiritual being and gave them authority uh, to rule over specific nations. Um, therefore, the little g god term uh, kind of identifies the way that you might think of them in an ancient culture. Uh, though the later Jews would call them angels, spiritual beings, principalities and powers, say whatever you will. Anyways, um, for God himself, Deuteronomy 32 goes on to say that God himself took his own nation. He chose one nation that would be his own, while all the other nations were divvied up amongst other beings that he had created to rule them. But the nation God chose is barren. <laughs> they can't have children, you know, like Abraham and Sarah cannot have children. And in some ways, I always wonder in my mind, like, since we know, according to Psalm 82, that these other little G gods, these spiritual beings that God made become corrupt, 
Like, I wonder if they're like almost laughing at God. Like, are they corrupt already? And they're just like, we have all these nations under us, but the real God, he's got two barren people who are a hundred years and 90 years old. What's he going to do? You know, is that the way that they're thinking? Obviously, I don't know. Um, But that's got to be the way Abraham and Sarah might be thinking. God, you said you'd make us a mighty nation. That this is your nation. We can't have kids. What do you expect us to do? We are old and dying. There's nothing we could do at this point. We're way past any kind of menstrual cycle. It's just not going to happen. You have to understand, though, this this is part of God's intention. One, he's testing Abraham. He needs to see that Abraham's going to be faithful to him and follow him and follow through, which so far we've seen in Abraham's life. There's a lot of failure stories happening. Um, but we're still waiting for Abraham to, to get this thing right. So there's this test. But also, this is kind of God's way of saying, like, look, I'm... I'm the real father of this nation, okay? So like the other beings, I gave them their nations. They inherited it because of me. Uh, But this one, I will show everyone that the only way that this nation is ever going to exist is only by what I can do. I'm the one true God and I can create a miracle I can bring children even when there is no scientifically plausible way for this to happen. And so you see God showing Abraham and Sarah right here, like, you will be a mighty nation, but it will not be by anything you can do. Sure, you went outside of the bounds of of what my promise was, and by your own culture, you tried to raise up a child. But that was not what I was talking about. The nation that I am specifically going to inherit and bless Uh, to the extreme that I've been prophesying over you, you will only ever have that because of me. I am the only one who can give that to you. And that's just perhaps another devotional thought for us to kind of dwell on again today. It's only by God that, that things can happen. And that was something that I was actually reminding myself of when we were starting to get into the dinner church model. This past week, we saw 101 people in here. It's the second time in eight years we've ever gone over 100, that we've entered into triple digits. And I remember when we were working on the dinner church model, putting things together, I just remember thinking, if this works out, Jamin, you got to pay attention. God was the one who was telling you and your board and your church and all of these things, giving you all ideas to, to pull this off. And you need to never get to the point where when people ask you like how how you guys did it, that you would look back and say, oh, well, here's uh, the practices we put into place, A, B, C, D, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that I just felt convicted like, no, Jamin, when those moments come, sure, you might have some tips, but your only real answer you're ever going to be able to give is God did it. It was all God. You know, we were... A church that had tried to get up there over and over again to create something thriving over and over again and nothing was happening. But then God entered the picture and it was only him. So another devotional thought. You can't, but God can if you can uh, put your faith in him.
Okay. Let's return back to Ishmael again. Um, Abraham, you know, he laughs at this, this, what he thinks is a joke, that his wife is going to have a child at 90 years old. And then uh, he, when he says that, he's like, oh, let Ishmael live before you. In other words, like, look, God, let's not joke about this. Just, you know, Ishmael's my son. Let's let him live before you. Let him be the fulfillment of your promise. So it's clear Abraham still, like, doesn't see any possibility of, of him having his own child at this point. Um, but then God stops him when he says that. He says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So the real covenant that God has promised Abraham, that's that's going to Isaac. But he doesn't forget about Ishmael. Again, Ishmael means, you know, God hears. And, and he hears Ishmael here. He hears Abraham talking about Ishmael here. And he literally says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. So that's kind of funny the way that's phrased probably in Hebrew, right? As for God hears, I have heard you. <laughs> Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. So uh, again, he's getting that, that promise that was made to Abraham's children. But we do have to be honest here. We are now starting to see like there is a separation between the way that this promise is going to be made manifest in Ishmael's life as compared to Isaac's life. Isaac, again, is the real fulfillment of that covenant promise as God had promised it in the way that God had promised it. Is Ishmael going to inherit some of that? Yeah, but now we're starting to see lines drawn. Uh, God goes on, He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So the covenant promise, that goes to Isaac. But still Ishmael seems to receive something that sounds like that promise, just not to the same extent. And uh, we see that, obviously, Jesus is, his fulfillment is not found. Jesus, when he comes to bless all the nations, that is not found in Ishmael's line. It's found in, in uh, um, Isaac's line. Uh, this is the line of Abraham and Sarah, that line. The real promise comes from the child God promised. Um, and right here, we've got something interesting that, that really kind of stands out to you. Because you know 12 is a big number in the Bible, right? You've got 12 tribes of Israel, 12 children, um, where all of the 12 children who have descended from Abraham, those 12 children are going to be the linkage back to Abraham down the road. Um, but here we have, interestingly enough, that number show up. So there's there's the, the 12 tribes of Israel, there's the 12 disciples, but then Ishmael is told he's going to father 12 princes. And that's how he's going to see his fulfillment of becoming a great nation. And since we're talking about these 12 princes, let's go ahead and fast forward to Genesis 25, 12, because there we see that, you know, he's not making this up. And there are the 12 princes that come from Ishmael. It says, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael. 
named in the order of their birth. And now I'm going to butcher all these names. Neboath, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsem, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their tribes, by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. So I know we just fast forwarded to the end right there, but you see the fulfillment of, of two prophetic words right there. Uh, God saying, look, Ishmael's going to father 12 princes. Well, there you go. You've got your 12, uh, um, your 12 descendants on the other side, born out of Abraham's own plan to have his, have a child. You've got those 12, um, but it's not the same kind of 12 that's going to be produced out of, uh out of the fulfillment of Isaac's line. Now, I'll be honest with you. I expected uh, a lot of commentaries to be like, whoa, Ishmael had 12. Can you believe it? This is a huge number in the Bible. Let's talk about it. But surprisingly, most of the commentary notes that I looked at are just like, hey, you know, 12, like the 12, 12, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. So uh, nobody really gave me anything super deep to go off of there, but you can kind of see since 12 is such a big number, just kind of linking back to the multitudes of people, if you will, you can kind of see fulfillments being found in the fact that um, that there were 12 uh, princes that, that came from, from Ishmael here. And, uh, you know, different commentaries will go to explain all of these different uh, um, nations that uh, come out of these princes of Ishmael, but... You're definitely seeing one thing come true. If you're to just go back to Abraham and remember that Abraham was told to be the father of many nations, that's now happened twice over. Once by his own plan that, though it was wrong, has entered into that prophetic word. And then uh, by God's plan as he makes his own nation. So whenever we're like, oh yeah, God's got a huge nation that, that came out of Isaac, we also forget, like, it's even bigger because technically, genetically, <laughs> Ishmael adds into that as well. And then, yeah, the uh, other prophetic word that's, that's here in this statement about uh, Ishmael's death is the fact that he settled over against all his kinmen. So that's, again, kind of taking us back to the thought of him as a wild donkey. What does that mean uh, and we're starting to see a little bit more uh, validity to the idea that maybe he's, I, well, you know, in, in whatever way you want to say that he's wrestling with the people around him, there definitely seems to be this element, whether he's a social outcast to them because he's a nomad living his own free life, he's no longer a slave, uh, or he's kind of like making a ruckus as a wild donkey of a man amongst them. That's uh, another way to look at it. So, yeah. Okay, so that takes us through a few more passages about the story of Ishmael. And I know we just saw him pass away. We got to the end of the story. But I'm not done yet. I want to get back to... I, I mentioned earlier that there's this part where we wonder if Ishmael did anything wrong. Though I don't feel he did, 
let's at least take a moment to address that. We are before Isaac, uh, we're before, sorry, we're before Ishmael has died, but we are after the Sodom and Gomorrah event, uh, which will be covered in a different time. So we're now in Genesis 21, uh, which we've passed a few um, chapters now. So at this point, Ishmael has grown up a little bit, and now he has a half-brother named Isaac. So um, Isaac grows and he's weaned, which means, you know, he's, he's become old enough at this point. We don't know at what time they fully stopped back then. There's been different estimates given as to how old someone might be when they were weaned. Um, but there was often like a big celebration when a child was weaned. Not only had they lived long enough to be weaned, which was more rare back in the day to, to actually live long enough. Um, but, uh, um, there's a celebration that he's kind of entering into a a new stage of not adulthood, obviously, but he's, he's growing up. Right. Uh, so we talked about this in our episode on, uh, family relationships back then. Um, and here we see that they have a feast. So, Genesis 21, 8, the child grew and was weaned. Isaac grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Let me read that again. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had bore to Abraham, laughing. So she sees... She sees... Uh, She sees Ishmael laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a, bow, of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. 
up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened his eyes, sorry, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. All right, so you thought we were done because we got to his death, but now that we've backed up, you see that there's a lot more that we still have to cover here. Starting off with the fact that Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, laughing. Ishmael is laughing. Now, this does not sound weird to us. Well, okay, it does sound weird to us because she kicks him out right after, right? Why would you kick someone out for laughing? So let's uh, address some of the possible things here. Um, starting with uh, um, some proposals that can sound a little weird, but may make a little more sense if you remember back to our our story about uh, Isaac being caught laughing with Rebecca. Do you remember the story? Isaac is laughing with Rebecca, and because of this, um, it is recognized that these two are married. In other words, the Bible is not always explicit about some of the things that happen that are of sexual nature. Sometimes it uses other euphemisms to get there. Um, Here's the thing. It's doubtful that this guy saw Isaac and Rebecca laughing and was like, oh, they must be married. But instead, this laughing in some way seems to be saying something of some kind of sexual nature. Maybe it's hugging. Maybe it's flirting. Maybe it's uh, some would go so far as to say fondling. I don't know why that was going on out in the open for everyone to see. But <laughs> one way or another, um, they there is this conclusion we are to draw from the fact that Isaac and Rebecca are laughing is that there's more kind of romantic implication behind this. That doesn't mean that the word laughing, therefore, is always a euphemism, but it is one way in which we see um, the, the Bible use it. So let's return to the Lexham Bible Dictionary. I'm going to give you just a few more ideas to, to chew on on this um, because this word can go in all kinds of ways. It can be positive. It can be neutral. It can be negative. So here's four different views as to what could be happening right here. Um, one uh, scholar, Schwartz, he argues that Ishmael's presence, not his actions, offends Sarah enough for her to banish Hagar and her son. So right there, um, he doesn't see anything like super crazy going on with uh, Ishmael or anything like that. He's, she's just mad at him. Uh, second, Von Rad argues that is it impossible. It's impossible to determine the verb's positive or negative connotation from the context. Therefore, he's like, could you take it a good way? Could you take it a bad way? Yes. It's impossible to really tell. Hackett, uh, this is your third one. Hackett suggests the text is making a pun with Isaac's name. Because remember, Isaac's name is he laughs. So here it's trying to say like, here's Ishmael laughing at he laughs. So uh, Hackett suggests the text is making a pun with Isaac's name where Ishmael is mocking Isaac through mimicry. She further suggests Ishmael's sin was hubris 
striving for a social and familial position that was not his to take. So in the same way that you might see Hagar trying to, now that she's pregnant and Sarah's not pregnant, she's kind of moving up the social ladder and treating her master badly. In the same way, you kind of see right here the possibility of uh, Ishmael's like making fun of this child on his big day. He's been weaned and here he is making fun of him. Ha <laughs> ha, he laughs, laughing at, at he laughs, right? Making fun of his name, something like that. Um, he's he's older than him, and here you just kind of have this kind of like rivalry maybe going on, where he's making fun of his half brother. So maybe that's what made uh, um, made Sarah so mad. Um, and then finally, uh, Tribble. There, here's your fourth idea, and this one's a bit more out there. Tribble notes that the term can have the connotation of masturbating when the phrase with Isaac is omitted. So he's bringing in kind of a sexual idea into this uh, um, frame that here, here he is laughing in a kind of sexual way like maybe Rebecca and Isaac were laughing together. Now, I understand, again, that this word can go that route and be used in kind of a euphemistic kind of way. However, when we look at the rest of the story, I feel like if that was really what was going on, you would see some more red flags rise up in the rest of the story. Um, instead, what you see is Hagar is chased, uh, well, she's more or less like packed up a little bag and said to leave. And she goes out in the wilderness where she doesn't make it where she's headed. She's about to die. Her son's about to die. Things are not going well. Um, and then God shows up. He's like, I see it. I, I hear you. Uh, I'm going to take care of you. Uh, now, of course, God is gracious and stuff like that. So if something bad was going on, uh, God would, of course, be gracious regardless of that. But at the same time, you know, God is not one who's like, afraid to call out sin throughout the Bible when he shows up. So if there was like something really weird going on here from like a sexual standpoint that should like startle us, I feel like you would have seen when God shows up some kind of different kind of story or not that God wouldn't take care of them, but an acknowledgement of the way in which they had ended up where they've ended up. Now, yeah, I'm just speculating that there would be more to the biblical story if that was it. And, of course, someone could say, mm, no, that doesn't have to be there. I understand that. Um, I don't know. I just feel like you, you can often tell when there's like a real negative atmosphere to a biblical story, it makes it pop. Um, and I don't see that with the rest of the passages that surround this moment of Isaac laughing um, so I, sorry, of, of Ishmael laughing, you know, it doesn't necessarily make it pop in my sight. So with that being said, I would opt for some other kind of, uh, a different kind of way that would make sense. Uh, obviously what we do know is that, uh, Sarah gets, uh, jealous. She doesn't want to share in any way with, uh, with um with Ishmael and uh, she's already kind of been at Ishmael and Hagar's throat and now we're seeing an old story reappear all over again. The first time, 
we saw Hagar fled. This time she's being kicked out. And uh, um, again, we just see the whole soap opera story reappearing right here. That Obviously, when you bring in sexual drama into a story, it creates a lot of tension between all the parties involved. So needless to say, I would not say that there is a sexual act implied here. Uh, I, I do see possibly the double entendre of laughing at someone with the name he laughs. That makes sense to me. But as to what way you really need to take it, um, we, we won't fully know. As, as that one scholar said, as Von Rad said, it's impossible to determine positive or negative. But we do know that there was kind of like a, a, negative, uh, a negative reaction to, to that moment right there. Now, fast forward a little bit in that passage, and you see uh, two references to to bows, which helps you see, like, you know, it's almost character development. They're kind of telling, like, an origin story, uh, uh, making you think of Ishmael in a certain way. When Hagar puts him under a bush because she thinks that he's going to die and she doesn't want to see him die, she goes, it says that she walked about a bow shot away from him. Uh, so there you have one reference to a bow. But then as you fast forward a few more verses, you see that God is with Ishmael as he grows up. He lives in the wilderness and becomes an expert with the bow. So it just shows you a little bit of like Hebrew character development. Hagar went a bow shot away. You know, like anyone who knew of Ishmael would be like, ah, I see what it's saying. Yeah, he was an expert with the bow. You see the the bow and arrow entering his his life it's uh uh what's that word that everybody except me knows very well it's a pre pre no no not pre it's foreshadowing foreshadowing hagar went about a bow shot away foreshadowing and he became an expert with a bow okay uh let's reference uh, another thing here I often talk about, as I've already done this episode, the angel of the Lord, caps lock Lord, the angel of Yahweh. Um, but here in this story, we kind of have a repetition of Hagar's story from earlier, right? She's in the wilderness. She feels like everything's falling apart when suddenly she comes across a well. Uh, and then God visible shows up as the angel of the Lord and takes care of her. In this story, She's about to die. Her son's about to die. She's in the wilderness once again. And then God shows up and there's a well with water for her to, to drink from. And uh, this time in the story, it's not the angel of the Lord, but it's the angel of God, you might have noticed. Um, and so you're like, okay, so is it always have to be the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, in order for it to be the visible angel of God? And the answer would be uh, no, because again, we have here, though though this angel takes on the title, the angel of God, um, it is the same angel of Yahweh. There's a few important things to help discern this. First off, you see this angel talk as though he is God once again. Uh, it says God opened her eyes after he had talked and uh, he, this angel says, I will make him into a great nation. He, he restates the promise that he made a long time ago. So you see that uh, kind of restated here. Um, 
But that being said, why then the angel of God? Well, uh, in the same way that today we would, uh, some people are like, you know, we interchangeably use Lord, God, sometimes Lord God, (laughs) Father. You know, we have different ways of referring to God. Uh, So they do in the Bible. There's lots of different names for God. And in this particular case, um, we can tell that this is the angel of the Lord because of the repeat of themes, because uh, he talks as though he is God, and partially because of the um, the preceding word, the. It's the angel of God. It's not an angel of God. It's the angel of God. So that also draws our attention and, and causes us to note that this isn't just any given angel. And then uh, final note on this particular passage that I'll draw attention to is back to some of the uh, wild donkey stuff. It says uh, that he became an expert with a bow, and he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So if he's living in the wilderness, that again does kind of take us back to thinking of the wild donkey in a wild kind of way. He's in the wilderness, right? Uh, He's not domesticated. He's free. He's a nomad. That does put that feeling back into our minds. Um, We also see... Um, that since he takes a wife from the land of Egypt, like that's his mom's homeland, right? Uh, he's not going to grow up and be super thrilled about the way that his father's family taught him, right? Uh, he lives with his mom. His mom's taken care of him his whole life. Um, his stepmom was a, a jerk to him. Uh, his dad decided to let him go out into the wilderness and he almost died there. Uh, Though he's going to show up for his father's funeral later, his burial, um, clearly in the end, you know, if if this child's going to side with the parent, it's going to be Hagar, his mom, the Egyptian. Uh, And so he ends up taking an Egyptian wife, and that kind of brings to mind the possibility of the wild donkey idea too, the kind of kick in and and being out of control simply because... uh, he is siding with the Egyptian side of his genetics. And the Egyptians later were clearly going to see kind of a reversal. In this story, Abraham and Sarah have an Egyptian slave. In that story, the Egyptians are now the oppressors against all of Abraham and Sarah's children. So uh, when we see that reversal come, you know, this almost feels a little bit of like foreshadowing to some extent. Um Ishmael, the other one who was blessed by God, born out of the um, the the unwise decision of uh, Abraham and Sarah. This guy is going to get married to the Egyptians, and therefore, since we see such struggle with the Egyptians, it's just that wild donkey imagery of maybe he was a pain in the butt for all of uh, Abraham and Sarah's children as well. The wild donkey in now two different ways. Um, again, the wilderness, living in the wilderness, he's wild, but also perhaps being a pain to to those around him. That being said, there is our story of Ishmael, but uh, I feel like despite how long we've already talked, we've got one more thing that we should address. Um, and this is going to be on a completely different topic, 
but Paul uses the story of Hagar and Sarah in an allegorical kind of way. And when I say allegory, you know, like think of Narnia. So in the book of Narnia, like there's a lion, but that lion is representative of God. And the lion sometimes breathes, but his breath is representative of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the same way, Paul actually tells us like, I want you to think of Hagar and Sarah, that whole thing as allegory. So let's just fast forward because this is one of the final times we see it pop up in the Bible, this story. And let's just kind of cover all our bases on this. If you'll turn along in your Bibles with me, um, Galatians 4.21. Unless you're driving, of course, don't do it, then that'd be bad for you. Uh, tell me, this is Paul talking, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are promise, children of promise. But just as at this time he who was, according, who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also is it now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay, if you have a headache, you are not alone. Uh, because we're not used to geography and thinking in the way that Paul just talked, um, it, it's, it's easy to zone out. One thing I do want to point out really quick, though, that is important outside of allegory. It's important to the way that we were talking about things before. When it gets back to um, uh, to Ishmael laughing, what does what's really going on there? Right here, we just saw Paul had an interpretation, and he didn't think of it in any kind of sexual kind of way. What Paul said uh, was just at the time, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, so he's talking about Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac, so also it is now. In other words, right there, Paul is saying in his own interpretation that uh, Ishmael in some way, 
persecuted Isaac when that laughing happened. So if you want the biblical answer as to what actually happened right there, if you were to go to the New Testament, the New Testament would say that there was persecution between the two, that Ishmael had done something to Isaac. As for the rest of this passage, honestly, I don't I don't want to go too deep right now, so I'm just going to tell you the basic gist. We all know if we've read through Paul at any time that he's got this big thing about uh, the law versus the spirit, living by the law as living uh, versus living by the spirit. And in this particular passage, he's still going on that rant. He just decides to use allegory to tell it. So just as Aslan might represent God, Hagar represents the law. Just as Aslan's breath might represent the Holy Spirit, uh, Sarah represents uh, the spirit. So um, and there's no connection between Aslan and this story, by the way. I'm <laughs> just talking about allegory. So what Paul's saying is like, look, Hagar represents slavery, represents Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai represents the law. So just think of the law and everything that comes with it. Think of that as kind of like, think of it as like... Uh, inferior in the same way that Ishmael technically you know he's like inferior when it comes to all of the blessing that God poured out what God really wanted was was Isaac to carry all this covenant he was the one that was planned for this so in the same way that everything that the law represents as Hagar that right there is slavery because uh, Hagar was not a, a free woman but everything that represents the line of Sarah, that's the spirit. And that's what God actually has in mind for us. So let's live by the spirit, not by um, the law. Let's live by the free woman, Sarah, not by the slave woman, Hagar. Uh, again, it's allegory. He's not trying to demean Hagar necessarily. He's just trying to say like, you know, which one do you want to live by? The superior promise in the spirit or the slave uh, the slave ideals of, of Hagar. So allegory, but still. And then Paul also allegorically likens his world. Uh, the people who live by the law are persecuting the people living by the spirit. Um, just as Ishmael, the, the product of Hagar, who's representative of the law, was persecuting Isaac, the product of that who was living by the Spirit. So <laughs> that's that's some pretty dense allegory. But, you know, if you knew the story of Hagar and Ishmael pretty well, um, as his community might have, then using that as like a, a way to think about things would be a, a very easy way for him to refer to um, this lesson that he loves to teach about living by faith, about living by the Spirit, and not necessarily by the law. All right. Well, if you're still listening, I need to clarify something that I said before we close out. You know, I've talked a lot throughout this about how God simply takes like a promise that he's made to, um, made to Abraham about Isaac, and he's just extended that promise onto Ishmael in a certain way. And of course, you would come to this conclusion partially because it's very similar in wording in the same way that God is going to multiply um, uh, Abraham's uh, descendants to the point that they can't be numbered. So he's going to do to um, 
to Ishmael. And so I think to a certain extent, it's it's okay to see like the overlapping themes. God has taken, yes, uh, a similar blessing to what he's made in his covenant with Abraham, and he has applied it onto Isaac. However, um, I just want to clarify one last time before we um, close out uh, the actual covenant promise that uh, God made was not to Ishmael, but it was made to Isaac. And you see this in Genesis 15. It's a passage we've already covered on the podcast, but if you remember, um, Abraham was afraid that uh, one of his servants was going to be his uh, um, inheritor, the person who was going to take all of his blessing, um, Eliza of Damascus. And God specifically said, um, no, he said that uh, this was going to be your very own son shall be your heir. And so uh, the son that, of course, God is referring to there, the covenantal son, is going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. Ishmael is still one of his sons, but not the covenantal son that God has promised. So again, similar promises, um, but different. Uh, Isaac is the manifestation of the covenant promise, whereas Ishmael is kind of like a, an adapted, similar idea, but not the, the same. Uh, and one of the reasons that this really stood out to me to clarify is because if you fast forward one last time in Genesis, in Genesis 25.1, it says, after Sarah died, it says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So obviously, um, we see here the Bible telling us that Abraham had more children later on in life. Um, and therefore, these children are technically his children too. But the Bible doesn't pause to say that they also were turned into mighty nations. Actually, if you go to verse 5 in that same chapter, it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the son of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. So uh, some of his other descendants get gifts, but Abraham gets all that he has and that kind of puts in mind like he's still the privileged, special, covenant-carrying child. So with that being said, um, though the Bible paused for Ishmael to receive a promise that looks similar to the covenantal promise that Isaac was given um, because he was Abraham's child, Abraham's later children were not given that. So that kind of undoes the severity with which I spoke earlier that just because Ishmael was Abraham's child, he therefore received. So I just want to kind of go back and kind of adapt what I was saying before. Hope that helps. Okay, that is your very long episode on uh, Ishmael and all that. Hope that catches up to your speed. And I hope you see why now I couldn't uh, make this while I was out of town. It required uh, a little bit more work. All right, we will catch you at church if not sooner. If you're on iTunes, leave a quick review just by scrolling to the bottom of this podcast and hitting the star button. Just helps it get out there more. Uh, but we will catch you, uh, yeah, uh, I already said that, didn't I? At 12.08. All right. I need to stop talking. I'm out of here. See you later.